0: It is a full morning for us, we uh, we um, also have the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate. But what a great morning where we gather and we sing God's praises, we hear about what God is doing through ministry and missions, and now we're going to look into the Lord's Word and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a good day, it's a good day. Well. It is good to be back. Um, it was a good week for me down in Arizona, and the plan with mom and dad seems to be working, and they're doing well, and it was good to see the friends that I made over the last year, but the truth is I am glad to be home. <laughs> this is, this is. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here with my brothers and sisters. Uh. Today we are going to pick up on the series back that's based on the history of the Ephesian church and we're going to be looking at Acts 19, 11 through 20. But before I read that, I would like us to go to the Lord in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to hear your word, we ask that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illumine our hearts and our minds that you would have us here what you would have us here for your glory and for your honor. May the name of Jesus be lifted up. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 19 verses 11 starting in verse 11. by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a little bit about Ephesus, which is going to be relevant for today's message and next week's message, and actually is very Uh, remains a very big issue for the church that we'll be looking at. Basically, Ephesus was not a good place. It was a major city of commerce, one of the most important seaports of the time. One commentator called it one of the most modern cities of its time. It had an estimated population of 225,000 people, which was huge for its day. And it rivaled Alexander and Corinth and even Rome. Alexandria, excuse me. It had a uh, 25,000 person capacity uh, theater and a bunch of temples such as the temple to the divine Julius Caesar who had become a god now and, and the goddess Roma. It had libraries, modern latrines, which was a big deal, beautiful houses and frescoes and huge baths. But the most important and prominent building in Ephesus was the temple to Artemis, or to Diana, as the Romans called her. She was the goddess of the hunt and of the wilderness, of animals, of vegetation, of childbirth, and catch this, of even of chastity. <laughs> but she was really worshipped as the goddess of fertility. And this led to all kinds of sexual perversions that involved her followers having sex with temple prostitutes, with the goal of receiving the blessing of the goddess and the sexual perversion, this sexual perversion and promiscuity of this cult of Artemis spread into the normative culture of of this city. The temple was also, uh, very little of it remains, had been a a sacred site for a thousand years. And it served as the city's main bank, uh, which made the temple one of the major banking centers of the world also. Basically, Ephesus was a very carnal, pagan, promiscuous, financially prominent, and sexually perverse place. And I'm not talking about New York or Seattle or Los Angeles. And the the debauchery in the guise of the worship of Artemis was not the only game in town either. Ephesus was also well known for the adamant an abundant practice of witchcraft and magic and casting of spells for all kinds of things from how to be successful or to get pregnant or how to win in gambling. And not surprisingly, it was also rampant with demonic activity, which led to a business opportunity for those who supposedly would use spells and exorcism which usually involved calling on a supposedly more powerful god or demon to kick the unwanted demon out of a person. Jews were also involved in this mix of exorcism, but they knew as followers of Yahweh that anyone who put themselves forward as a god was a liar because there's only one god and his name is Yahweh. But with this background, enter our Jewish exorcists in our story. Now, whether or not they were well-intended or whether they were charlatans isn't really clear. It also isn't clear whether they were ever, ever successful in exorcising a demon. But they certainly tried, and they traveled around trying. These particular men were the son of a man who supposedly was a Jewish chief priest, which may or may not have been true since there isn't any specific reference to him in any Jewish literature other than this. Most scholars think that these men were of the Jewish priestly line and probably the son of a Jewish priest who had possibly served in the temple in Jerusalem at some point. And Regardless of uh, whether it was true, um, these men were using their dad's prestige, legit or not, to enhance their resume as exorcists in this very busy market where there was plenty of work to do. And one thing they saw as they were going around their business, doing their business, was this Jewish guy named Paul who was doing some extraordinary things. These seven men then made the same mistake that too many readers of the New Testament also make, and that was that they assumed that Paul was doing the miracles. Well, last week we addressed, or two weeks ago, we addressed that the scriptures are very clear that it was not Paul who was doing these things, but God was doing them Through Paul as he proclaimed the truth of the gospel. But from the perspective of these Jewish exorcists and to the pagan community, the Jewish guy who was talking about some stuff that these Jewish men clearly had not embraced, namely that Jesus was the Messiah, they saw this other Jewish guy doing some amazing things and the key seemed to be in the magic spell or in calling on the name of Jesus, using the name of Jesus to get Jesus to kick out the other demons. These itinerant exorcists apparently decided to use the magic formula or spell or incantation that they thought Paul was using. But there was a problem. Actually, there were a number of problems, but the following are probably the two biggest. And first was there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what was going on. As I said, they thought Paul was doing the miracles, using using Jesus to get rid of the demons. The truth is, it was the other way around, that Jesus was using Paul to do the miracles, to glorify his name, not Paul's. The second thing was that they did not know this Jesus. And they pretended to speak for him or on his behalf. When Paul said or did something in the name of Jesus, he did so as an ambassador or a a representative or a spokesman for Jesus. Paul was not claiming to be the authority, claiming to be a magician, claiming to be a miracle worker. He was merely doing the work that God told him to do preaching the gospel of Jesus, and he knew that God, not he, was in control of the situation. These men, and again, they are not alone in in making this mistake, viewed Paul very much like they viewed themselves or other magicians as a person who could get a higher power to do their bidding at their will or per an incantation of some sort. Paul would never do that. Anyone who actually knows who Jesus is would never do that. But these guys, as the demons demonstrated, did not know that. Nor had these guys submitted to Jesus' authority, nor accepted him as Paul proclaimed him to be, the true son of God. And the demon knew that they were imposters. They were pretending to have authority over Jesus, who the demon did, in fact, know, and we'll come back to that in a bit, and the demon used the body of the demon-possessed man to beat them up and send them out of the house naked. This probably didn't help their marketing effort or their income stream very much. Now, but before I move on, I want to address this issue of the demon knowing Jesus. This is kind of a a tangent, but it's a significant enough theological issue that I I really want to address it here. Um, There are many demons in the New Testament who identify and bow down to Jesus. And there's a reason that the demons know Jesus. Because they know that Jesus the Son of God, the Lord of lords, created them. You're going, what? what? Jesus created demons? In fact, Jesus created their master, Satan. Now, I, you might be going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I am not saying that he created evil. I'm saying that the scriptures are very, very clear that Jesus created all things and nothing that was made was made apart from him. Satan and demons are things. And since nothing exists that God, Jesus in particular, did not create, that means he made them. But, and this is like a really, really important clarification. Jesus did not create them in their current state any more than he created us in our current sinful state. Satan was an angel of God, a special servant of God, perfect and beautiful. And he chose to rebel and become ugly and he took took other servants of God with them, and they have been in rebellion ever since. Eventually, Satan and his demons will be eternally bound in hell. In the time being, Satan and his demons are exercising their rebellion against their creator, primarily by trying to influence God's paramount creation, humans, to stay joined with them in their rebellion. However, the demons have not, even amidst their rebellion, have not forgotten who Jesus is, that he is Lord Almighty. One day, Satan's terror and influence will end, and every knee, including theirs, will bow. That said, what we see in the New Testament a number of times is that when demons encounter Jesus, they fell in fear and submission to him because they knew who he was. And this demon knew that these silly men, who without knowing who Jesus is or submitting to his lordship, were foolishly pretending that they could command Jesus around. With any luck, these Jewish men, after this experience, decided to rethink things and maybe did get to know Jesus. If they did, they're the lucky ones. There are many, many people who are familiar with Jesus, even pretend to speak in his name, but really do not know Jesus and have not submitted to his authority or recognized him as who he is. And their consequence is going to be much worse than a beating and being chased out of a house naked. So that's a little bit about that. What I want to do now is look at the response to all this, which was basically a revival. People saw what happened. And while there might not, they might not have understood it all, they understood that Jesus' name, the, the representation of who he was, his name, was powerful. And many finally grasped what Paul had been preaching Those who saw all of this and heard about it, they responded and and fear fell upon them and, and the name of the Lord was extolled or honored or magnified or exalted. And that was the right response. And for those who were willing to end their rebellion, confess their sins and recognize who Jesus was, the almighty God, as opposed to the false gods, the many of them that surrounded them, This fear was manifested in reverence and awe of the goodness of God. The next thing that happened will be the focus of this message. And let me read it again in verse 18. It starts in verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their works, their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found them to be fifty thousand pieces of silver. I I have, and maybe you have too Uh, imagined this scene with all these folks bringing all these magic books out. And I've imagined the great big bonfire of the books and the scrolls. And maybe you've also done this and done the math and calculated how much is 50,000 pieces of silver in today's dollars, which, just so you know, would be equivalent to millions and millions. There, there, There were either a lot of books or a lot of very expensive books, and probably both. Seattle's population is about three or four times the size of Ephesus. Even for Seattle, finding enough books on a particular subject, plus getting everyone to pull them off the shelf and burn them all at one time, well, I, I'm not sure we would come to the size of that bon, bonfire. And books were slightly, uh, they're slightly more available now than they were back then. So the point is, um, can, can you get a sense of how prolific and culturally ingrained this magic and dark spirituality stuff had become and how much it had permeated the community that they had that many books? But here's what, I really want you to note. And it, it's the very first part of verse 18. And it says that many of those who were bringing the magic books to be burned were believers. Did you catch that? I didn't always catch that. Maybe some of them were brand new believers and had just converted to Christ based on what had just happened to those guys who just got a whipping by the demon. More, more likely is that many of them were believers who had converted to Christ previously and were professed followers of Jesus, yet they'd held on to their magic and sorcery books either in ignorance or because they, uh, of their monetary value or because of some early form of mixing of religions or, and, and probably, probably, they just had not totally surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus in their lives. These were believers. So are we. They knew who the Lord Jesus is. So do we. They had seen his magnificent works and even experienced godly fear and magnified his name. So have we. Yet when they in, in, encountered afresh the power and the majesty, of the Lord Jesus, it caused them to bring forth things from their pre-Christian past that they had, for whatever reason, been holding on to. And they burned them. We need to do the same. Now, we can apply this text by running home right now and burning all the magic books and spells and potions that we have on our shelves. But I think we'd be missing the point. Plus, it might not be a very big bonfire, even if you counted all the self-help books. (laughs) Or we can more appropriately apply this text to anything that is holding us back in our walk with the Lord. And, And here is where this sermon gets personal. But before I go there, I want to make a few major disclaimers. The first is that what follows, what I'm going to say, is for believers in the true Jesus who have repented of our sins, been forgiven of our sins, and turned our lives over to Jesus. Very important. The second is that if you hear what I am going to say as more piling on of guilt or bad stuff, then you're not listening. I am talking about freedom, I'm talking about life. I also know that some of you might even have stories of things not considered holy, ending up in a burn barrel or the trash. I know two brothers in this community that, that have very close stories to that. And, and whether it was right or wrong to destroy those records or books or whatever, you need to separate mentally that experience from what I'm going to be talking about. Because those experiences might have been wrong or misguided, but but more importantly, they probably were merely addressing the obvious stuff. Tossing a magazine or realizing that too much booze is holding you back and then pouring it down the drain... Or not or choosing not to buy another lottery ticket. You know, candidly, those are obvious. What I'm going to talk about are not so obvious. You see, the real issue here was not the books, it was that these Ephesian Christians had held on to things and allowed their hope and assurance and behaviors to be governed by those things things that were not consistent with their walk with the Lord. The books were paper. The reason to hold the books was what brought death and held them back in bondage. That was what needed to be burned. The question is this, what are you, again, believer, what are you, believer, holding on to from your past that you need to bring to the fire and burn? For example, perhaps you are holding on to a time when a person hurt you badly. Candidly, regardless of how wrong it was or how bad it was, holding on to it is only holding you back and hindering your experience of the full life that Jesus has provided for you. But even that one's kind of obvious. Or here's another example, and it's a little trickier to identify. It is a willingness to compromise morally or sexually or ethically because changing and no longer doing those things that we know are not consistent with the will of God is simply too difficult to do. It probably... Uh, It wasn't easy for those folks who had spent millions of dollars on magic books in their very pagan culture where everyone was doing it and everyone believed that way. It wasn't easy for them to take their treasures and their spells, their spells to get well, their spells to be safe from bad things, their spells to have a child, their spells to be successful, things that they really believed would happen due to those books it wasn't easy for them to go and toss those things in the fire. They were burning their culture. They were burning their past. They were burning their beliefs and their, and their literal incantations for a better life. But this is true. Um, the more they accepted who Jesus was and what he had done, the more they transferred their hope to Jesus from a world of magic and selfishness and terrible fear, the easier it was for them and the more joy they experienced as they watched the symbols of their past turn to ash. The same would be true for us. So what behaviors in your current life, what things in your life and from your past life and culture, are you still holding on to that you need to relinquish to the Lordship of Christ? My brothers and sisters, if, if you can think of anything, do two things. First, look squarely into the eyes of Jesus and remember who he is and what he has done. And we are going to be celebrating that in a few minutes. And second... Head to the fire with that thing and toss it in. Freedom, liberty, relief, joy will happen if you do that. Now now, some examples that are a little less obvious. Um, they, there's two of them, uh, and, and there's many more of these. But they're the lies of Satan that too many of us hold on to. The first one is related to Satan's lies about guilt. If you're packing around guilt related to a sin or a situation from the past that you have confessed to the Lord and asked for forgiveness for, you need to let that go and toss it in the fire. Yes, we are guilty. So was Paul when he said he was the worst of sinners. Yes, we were wrong in our actions. And according to the scriptures, we deserved the just judgment of God. And certainly, you might have a sense of remorse for the damage you did, and you might be driven to never do that again, and you may even have temporal consequences still to deal with. All of that can be true. But more important than all of that, which is also true, but Satan does not like you to think about it, Christ paid the penalty for that sin. He did. It's right here. We're going to celebrate it. If you repented of your sin and asked for forgiveness, and you meant it in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, and he has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. You are no longer guilty. It is a lie of Satan that you are still guilty. Stop believing him. You're packing around something that is only holding you back in your walk with Christ and knowing the fullness of life that he has for you. Toss the guilt in the fire. The final example is similar to this guilt one, but it's probably more common. It's simply way too common. It is believing the lie of Satan and it's a lie of Satan that you are not good enough. At least the way the evil one says it and gets you to believe it. One of Satan's most effective tactics, one as old as the Garden of Eden, involves twisting the truth or leaving out key points. This lie is an example. The truth is we, on our own, are not good enough. Satan is 100% correct, and the scriptures entirely agree. Our own consciences will bear witness to this if we listen. But that being not good enough is apart from what is different, is separated by what Christ has done. And Satan knows this. Now, again, I'm talking to believers, someone who has repented of their sin and been born again. Satan only wants us to hear the not good enough part. And we hear it. And he wants us to forget about Christ's forgiveness part. And he will remind us over and over of this first part to the point that sometimes we just can't hear the second and if you come from a very legalistic background or from a misguided Catholic background or some moralistic tyranny of some other sort, you, you might even continue to believe it and be allowing Satan to beat you over the head with this lie. But stop. Look squarely into the eyes of the Savior. See who he is and embrace what he has done. And remember that when you were born again, you were imputed with the very righteousness and perfection of Jesus. What you were before that, not good enough, is no longer relevant. And Satan knows this. If you are in Christ, you are good enough. In fact, in fact, you're perfect. When the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and could not be more pleased. So brothers and sisters, why do we hold on to this notion that we're not good enough? We need to toss that in the fire. Please understand that by addressing these less obvious things that need to be tossed in the fire. I'm not intending to downplay the more obvious ones, but just don't stop there. For your freedom, for your joy, root out those areas of life that you're holding on to and that you're not submitting to the Lord's guidance and and direction, including those lies of Satan that you might be holding on to. These things need to go on the fire, and they need to become unretrievable ash, just like those books that were burned up. And this is what will happen if we do. Verse 20 tells us that after these people had done that, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. If we burn our stuff, the same will be true in our lives and in the world around us. So let me recap a few things. Ephesus is not a good place and and not too dissimilar from the culture of our world. Sure, Sure, there are differences, but an honest look will show great similarities, the blending of sexual perversion and wealth and false gods and people hungry for deliverance from oppression and demons and imposters who claim that they can deliver people But they're not able to, because they do not know Jesus. Yet Jesus' name remains powerful, and he is exalted. And as believers, we need to look again at the majesty of Jesus and fear him, with the right kind of fear, and magnify his name, and then bring those things in our lives that are not consistent with the life of Christ. Bring those things to the fire, toss them in, letting them turn to ash, and let them no longer hold us in bondage. The result will be that the word of the Lord, the gospel, and the kingdom of God will be advanced, and we will see it increase in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Father, cause us to see Jesus, who you are, what you've done. Free us from these things that hold us in bondage. Give us the courage to dig deep and to throw them on the fire for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.